You're listening to Revenge of the Drive-In from the Grandma Sophia's Podcast Network. This is the podcast where we watch and discuss two movies randomly selected from a list of over 1,700 and discuss with the intention of determining whether or not this makes for a good drive-in double feature. We're interested in horror films, exploitation movies, and other similar genres. We do go into the plots in detail, so if you're concerned about spoilers, we encourage you to check out these movies before listening. Follow us on Twitter for any updates, at DriveInPodcast. And without much further ado, I'm your host Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim! Alright Jim, we've got two movies from the 1970s here. Star Trek The Motion Picture, which, you know, is not really a drive-in movie, but whatever. <laughs> and and it's But it's joined by one that really is, and that's Theater of Blood, starring Vincent Price, the great Vincent Price. When did he die? Like, early 90s, I think. I mean, Edward Scissorhands, I think, is his last role. Yeah, my, my point was he's just looking old in this movie, but not too bad, you know? Yeah, this is only a couple years after Fives. I think they make him look older than he is, actually. Ah, uh, yeah, that would make sense. So you want to get us started with Star Trek? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Star Trek, the motion picture, came out in 79. I think they filmed it pretty quickly in 78. It's directed by Robert, how do you say his name? Weiss? Wise? Wise, okay, the director yeah. of The Day the Earth Stood Still, the co-director of West Side Story, directed Sound of Music. I don't remember if that was co-directed or if he was solo on that one. And I, but... I know he also did The Andromeda Strain, didn't he? Yes, yeah, he's got a pretty impressive resume. Uh, in fact, his like arguably greatest accomplishment wasn't as a director. He edited Citizen Kane. He was the editor. Yes, yeah. Star Trek's produced by Gene Roddenberry, but for the writing credit, I think he kind of co-wrote it because the writer is alan dean foster who did a bunch of star wars books and other than that i don't know he also wrote infinite jest oh did he no david foster wallace (laughs) no roddenberry though as like the creator of star trek and everything you would think he has a lot more writing credits even on that series than he does Mm -hmm. he has a decent amount of like story by credits but probably only like three or four scripts that were actually written by him so i think he's a good ideas guy i don't think he's quite a prolific writer i guess yes i'm gonna agree with that and also i'm I'm gonna talk about that in a second because i think we need a bit of background for this movie but it's it's also starring pretty much the entire original cast actually i think the entire original cast including nurse chapel who was uh crap what's her name uh i forget but she plays loxana troy in in uh tng yeah okay major majel Majel barrett that's it yeah thanks and she also does the voice of the computer for for the enterprise yeah i didn't realize she was nurse chapel yeah she's been in the show forever until she died she might still be alive actually <laughs> yeah i don't know whatever i until, i hope i hope you're okay Major Barrett. Killed her. <laughs> a little background on this movie because it's kind of weird because <laughs> this movie came out after star wars which is possibly one of the biggest cultural phenomenons ever and yeah. also uh not long after close encounters of the 
Oh, actually, did it? That was 77, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, this is, yeah, so this is after Close Encounters. This is after Star Wars. So, like, especially with Star Wars. Close Encounters, Star Wars were the same year. Close Encounters is more heady, slow-moving sci-fi. Star Wars is fantasy schlock, you know, shooting lasers at people. Yeah, yeah. So you would think, okay, sci-fi is going to move in the direction of Star Wars. But then this movie seems to be looking a lot more back to, like, 2001 and to 60s, like, heady slow-moving boring sci-fi which makes sense given that it's an adaptation of the show but it's it's kind of probably not the best financial decision on on uh, roddenberry's part or whoever made that decision i did a bit of digging and the original ideas for a star trek movie came about in like the late 60s when the tv series was kind of in the middle of its run but i guess paramount which owned cbs back then and i guess still on cbs they said no. They kind of nixed it. They nipped it right in the bud because of the unpopularity of the original series. Yeah, I was going to say the original Star Trek didn't it didn't conclude. It was just not renewed or it was canceled or exactly, whatever. Exactly, yeah. I don't think we appreciate how bad how unpopular a show had to be back then <laughs> to be canceled because there's only three networks. Like how few viewers did they have? That, I know, yeah. That CBS was like, yeah, we're done with this. Yeah, poor Star Trek and poor Roddenberry, I guess, because again, it, it didn't really hit its stride until a decade later, which is when they decided to kind of renew the idea of a movie, of a feature film. And this was the best thing that could have possibly happened for virtually every person in the cast. I was thinking about this recently with like, has there ever been someone who has like cashed in or capitalized on basically one role as much as William Shatner? (laughs) And then I was thinking, yes, yes, there has been. There's George Takei. There's like all these other guys are like complete nobodies without Star Trek. And so you have this period where they're not a star with the television series, but they're on it. They're on a major series. Mm Mm-hmm. And then we get into the awkward early 70s, Star Trek's gone, DeForest Kelly's in Night of the Lepus, you know, they, <laughs> what, what are what are they doing with their lives? And then 79, <laughs> they're suddenly movie stars, you know, good for them. Yeah, and I mean, it's so, it's so bizarre because I, I actually just read up that DeForest Kelly died in kind of old folks long-term care home. Okay. Down like he, he seems or to be the oldest of the cast. He probably died, what, in the... In the 90s, I think, yeah. But uh, this place was for for aging stars that didn't have a lot of money. But uh, on that cheery note, the whole point of us talking about this is that Roddenberry, I think, had so much more to do with the plot of this movie than what the credits give him credit for, I guess. He had written the pilot for Star Trek Phase 2, which... Paramount had shut down the idea of a Star Trek movie in the 70s again, but they decided to go ahead with a television show with the original cast, and they were going to call it Phase 2. They had this beautiful kind of concept art, which if you look at it, like if you, I don't remember who the artist was, but if you just Google Star Trek Phase 2 concept art, it's absolutely gorgeous, and it's like a mix of all the colors and kind of style from the original series, but also that it's got something so like the next generation about it, which is where you can see where that show kind of picked up. And even where J.J. Abrams' Star Trek in, what, like 2009, was it, picked up? Phase 2 had already had the first episode written, and and that was by Roddenberry, and it was called In Thy Image. And the plot of that episode was the exact plot of this movie. So he brought the script to Paramount, and they said, hey, you know what would be awesome? A motion picture. And they're like, I love okay, that they we're back call in it business. the motion picture too. That's such like an old timey <laughs> thing. It's so because outdated. you have Superman the movie in seventy eight. <laughs> 
and then you have Star Trek, the motion picture. They really wanted to emphasize that this is different than that hack show, the hack television series from the 60s. They're like, this is something new. That hack show from the 60s that had a dog with a horn glued to its head as an alien. <laughs> and that had Clint Howard as a alien baby. Yeah. <laughs> pretending to be an alien adult. <laughs> Yeah, that's the weird, semi-complicated history behind Star Trek The Motion Picture. And then they had all these big names on board. So they had the original cast, which, again, weren't big names, but that's why people wanted to see it. Roddenberry was had things to do with it. Uh, they had Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score. The score is really great. It's one of the highlights. Even the theme he does is basically, it's a little different, but TNG basically uses that as their theme yeah it's something very similar to it so without further ado let's talk about it <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about the most boring movie ever made you take that back it's such a great movie well actually i'll talk about it well yeah later. no it's not blow up i'll give it that <laughs> so after we get this beautiful new score by jerry goldsmith we are introduced to the new look of the klingons which is pretty cool which is just that classic star trek joke you have a bunch of races with a bunch of shit glued onto their face yeah and... <laughs> well the the klingons in the original series just look like guys in blackface <laughs> there's yeah. no getting they around look... that it looks bad yeah so we have these klingons in these three klingon katinga class warships moving towards this giant cloud of stuff of energy they fire a few torpedoes, but they don't stop it, and the cloud literally disintegrates these ships in some kind of dated special effects. Nearby, there's the Upsilon 9 uh, Federation space station, and they pick up all this action, and we are told that uh, this cloud is moving towards Earth. But on Vulcan, we're shown Spock, who's, who looks kind of disheveled, and he's about to achieve or receive the Kolinar, which is his Vulcan rite of passage into becoming this unfeeling, entirely logical being. Just as he's about to get it, he's, he gets like this Vulcan force sense that something is not right in the universe, and he has to leave, and he's failed the coloner. We then come to one of the greatest entrances, I think, of any Star Trek character, other than Bones. It's Kirk. <laughs> <laughs> other than this one of three characters. But yeah, so Kirk steps off this this ship at the Starfleet Academy in San Fran, and he's dressed like... The uniforms uh, look great. They're no longer just sweaters. Yeah, yeah. With, with an emblem sewn on them. They look so comfortable. Roddenberry is literally insane, and he wanted all the uniforms in this movie to look like they were disposable. Because he thought that in the future, everybody would be wearing disposable clothes. Like, you wear them once and you chuck them away, and they're, like, recycled into new clothes. That's the dumbest idea. <laughs> I know. Ever. And then when costume design came to him with, like, a bunch of stuff, he was like, this looks like shit. And they're like, well, we've just, like, reused a bunch of fabric, and, and we're using, like, this nylon fabric. So they came back with all this stuff that everybody's wearing in the movie. And he goes, that doesn't look reusable or disposable. And they're like, well, this is way easier to make, and it's also cheaper. Like, it's, it's better for the budget of the movie. You'd think after three seasons of the original series he'd be aware of budgetary restraints i know i know know. admiral james t kirk he's an admiral now he steps off and uh he's talking to this new science officer and he says hey i am going to be on board the refitted uss enterprise and it will leave 12 hours ahead of schedule and the science officer's like okay i guess and on his way over to the enterprise kirk runs into scotty and scotty makes the point hey the enterprise isn't going to be ready in 12 hours but Kirk is like, no, no, Scotty, you don't understand. There's this energy cloud, and it's only three days from Earth, and the Enterprise is the only ship within, like, striking distance, which I don't know how. I mean, if it's not even ready to go, how can it be the only ship? 
Scotty takes Kirk over to the Enterprise, and we, as the audience, get to see that she's been completely gutted and remodeled, and we get this way too long of, like, a beauty shot on the exterior of the model of the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was getting tired. I was, like, looking on my watch. I was like, okay, come on. I like I like this ship, but let's move it along here. Again, Robert Wise saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, yeah, like, that's gotta where, be... Where right? there's just these long holding shots on very slowly moving ships, and it's gorgeous in that it's not bad here but i mean it's not the same thing yeah exactly yeah once on the ship kirk makes his way to the bridge and we're reunited with most of the old cast uh minus bones and spock and then kirk makes his way down to engineering where the new captain of the enterprise captain decker is there working with scotty and kirk has to pull him aside and say look decker i've been given command of the enterprise and decker's pretty cut up look at me I'm the captain. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Decker's pretty upset about it. He's like, well, you old fart. You know, you don't you don't know this ship like I do. This is completely, this is like a completely new ship, you stupid windbag. You haven't been out in space in like five years or something like that, or ten years, he says. But Kirk's pretty adamant. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to be the new captain, and you're going to be my executive commander and science officer, because then there's a transporter malfunction, which is the first kind of, or I guess the second exciting thing in this movie. I'm glad we skipped the scenes where for 45 minutes they just keep giving people new positions because he promoted or he demoted this one guy so the, so the next guy the science officer has to be demoted to something and then somebody know, else yeah. has to glad we skipped that it's good for the pacing it's it's so militaristic and that's what roddenberry likes you know he likes the whole structure of it all uh you know actually it's not that bad but it is pretty boring well, after Kirk breaks the bad news, he gathers everybody on this big, like, observation deck or something, and he shows them the footage of the Klingon ships being destroyed by the cloud. And just as he finishes, the Upsilon 9 station calls in to say that they're also being attacked by this cloud. Then we get a lot of, again, like, these long beauty shots of the station, and then it's disintegrated. Time is of the essence. They gotta leave now, but they gotta get a couple new crew members. And the first one they get is Ilea. Play, what's her name? Uh, uh, oh, shit, I had her name written down. Major Barrett? No, Ilea, Indian actress. Um, anyway, she's gorgeous. She plays this, like, Delton alien who's being brought on as the new navigator, and she had had this past relationship with Decker at some point. But she comes on, and then the next character that comes on is also the best character ever in anything, and it's retiree Disco Bones. <laughs> Uh, who'd been drafted back into Starfleet on the orders of Kirk because Kirk, quote-unquote, needs him because Bones is never really the doctor on the Enterprise. He's always the life coach of Captain Kirk. I guess with everybody kind of put together, they immediately <laughs> depart dry dock and also immediately run into issues. They they jump into warp speed well before their engines are prepared for it, and they get stuck in a wormhole where they're on this collision course with an asteroid. I don't know if you like this scene, Patrick. I like I like it a lot, the color, the effects, just everything that's going on. But what does somebody who's not the biggest fan of Star Trek think about this? I mean, it looks nice. I, I really do like the, um, I hate calling them practical effects because back then that's kind of all they had. <laughs> but like I like the effects throughout this movie but this kind of felt like a waste of time at the same time too it's just like random obstacle yeah it doesn't enhance the story in any way it, it doesn't advance the story in any way rather exactly yeah I guess just quickly they get stuck into this wormhole and they have to blow up this asteroid to get out of it and it's like this weird funky super colorful wormhole and everybody else is super colorful and it's going like in slow-mo and i can't even describe it it looks like paint is being or like it looks like their whole bodies are being smeared behind them but kirk orders Chekhov to destroy the asteroid with phasers decker jumps in says belay that order fire the torpedoes 
and Chekhov fires the torpedoes, destroys the asteroid, they get launched out of the wormhole. The only reason this scene was added is literally to pad the running time. Because as you said, it, it, it doesn't... No, I mean, it's it's there because we need something exciting to happen before the two-hour mark of the movie. <laughs> That's why it's there. So Kirk pulls Decker aside with Bones, and you know he's like, come on, Decker, why are you always fighting me on this? You know, I'm the captain of the Enterprise, and Decker goes, look, if you'd fired the phasers, you would have blown up the ship because the phasers are routed through the engine with this new design. I saved everybody. And now Kirk has to kind of finally step down a bit. He, he he has to back down a bit from always trying to be this weird, pushy leader on everybody. Because now he finally realizes, I am old. I have been out of the game a while. And I don't understand the ship like I thought I did. Even though it's like my baby. You have no idea how difficult it is for Shatner as an actor to <laughs> admit that he's in over his head. Or that he's kind of useless. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. He doesn't even... <laughs> I mean, that's probably and the I, only I, time... I will say, other than the visuals in this movie, and I mean, I like the score a lot, Shatner is my favorite part. You know, Shatner's kind of over time become like a joke or like a meme. Like we all know the overacting yeah. Shatner, but he's good in this movie. He's very oh, yeah, he's like, great. mannered and reasoned. And I mean, he's really good. I think he's good in most of the original show too. Mm-hmm. I mean, is he good when he's being possessed by a woman? Like, no, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it's the last episode. Who cares? Is he good when he's pretending to be a horse and he has a midget strapped to his back? No. <laughs> I don't even remember that. That happened? <laughs> yeah, in the original series. And yeah, and, and in this scene too, Bones kind of tells Kirk, hey, back it off a bit, pal. You're old. Coming from DeForest Kelly, that's <laughs> saying something. I know, yeah. And then next thing you know, we'll have James Duan calling someone fat. oh poor scotty you know when they launched his ashes into space i'm pretty sure it was with him (laughs) they had to use four shuttles to contain them all no the rocket exploded and then they had to get another bit of his ashes from somewhere else and send them up into space on a second (laughs) thankfully he had a lot of ashes (laughs) oh got him but after after this encounter of two gorillas showing each other how big their chests are spock boards enterprise he shows up in this in this little dinky ship comes on the enterprise and he says i'm only here because i got this vulcan force sense about this creature or this person or this thing in the center of this energy cloud and i have to talk to it and spock's pretty aloof too you know he gets on and the entirety of the original cast is there but he he barely speaks to any of them he just kind of resumes his old science officer station that's just leonard nimoy realizing he's too good for this <laughs> just in, in the invasion of the body snatchers remake he's he's like looking at like deforest kelly and nichelle nichols and he's thinking like i don't need this you guys do uh yeah leonard nimoy probably is probably the person who came out the best ahead of all the star wars stuff like I he don't had a bit of a believe career he's involved in star wars in any way or sorry star trek damn it <laughs> I, well, I think he is the most talented member of the cast. Again, in this movie, Shatner is my favorite, but I think Nimoy probably had the most talent, and he got the best non-Star Trek roles. I never saw Boston Legal. Like, you know, maybe Shatner's incredible in that. I don't know. But, you know, when, when DeForest Kelly's second most notable role is Night of the Lepus, you know, that's not a great sign. Well, he was in a bunch of, well, I mean, we wouldn't know about it, but he was in a bunch of cowboy stuff in the 50s. Okay. In early 60s. Well, with the entirety of the old crew back together and the Enterprise is back on her feet after some engine repairs, they finally intercept this energy cloud and they discover that something or someone is scanning their ship from the center of the cloud. So as they're kind of making their way to the center, they get attacked by these plasma balls, which damage the ship. But Spock kind of 
figures out the frequency of, of the radio wave frequency or something that this thing is speaking on. So he sends instructions to stop attacking. And then they continue to just push on into the center of this cloud where they find this giant ship-like megastructure and where the entity sends a plasma probe onto the bridge of the Enterprise and it starts accessing the computers. And by the way, this is also a great scene. It looks really cool. It's just like a big beam of like lightning moving around the ship. Uh, but yeah, so it, it starts accessing the computers of the ship and Spock tries to stop it, but it attacks him. And then for some reason, this energy probe latches itself onto Ilea and disintegrates her <laughs> and then leaves. So with nothing that the main characters can do, or anybody, I guess, <laughs> they push over this giant vessel, which is like 10 minutes of beauty shots moving slowly over this very clear model. This movie needs to drink a coffee. Oh, it does, yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, well, again, I think that's more of a, a Gene Roddenberry problem than the actual writing, or that they decided to adapt it <laughs> from, like, an hour-long television episode, like a 40-minute episode. Yeah, may, may, it, might just, it might just be that. It might be like, hey, let's have a normal Star Trek episode. Let's make it twice as long, but have as much excitement as we had in an hour episode. It might, yeah. it might be that, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so they get to this big anus which they call the aperture or the orifice, which leads to the center of the cloud. And Spock wants to go in, <laughs> into the anus, because he suspects that there's like some mechanisms or this being is, is behind the aperture. Then kind of out of the blue, just as quickly as she disappeared, Ilea comes back, but she returns as this artificial probe. And she says she was sent by V'ger, which is the name of this entity. And Bone scans her, and he realizes that she's just completely made up of, I guess, machine parts, you know, like, and that the real Ilea it no longer exists. She, was, she actually was vaporized, and this is just a copy. But this she's, like, the, the most perfect the remake copy. of Tetsuo the Iron Man I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, and then Nurse Chapel shows up in this scene, you know, talking about how, how wet she is, I mean, how wet her eyes are, and, you know, she sees Decker. Ilea then kind of roams the ship and starts interacting with the cast members, the crew, uh, because she is this. No, she doesn't she... interact with the crew. She never talks to like the cinematographer or anything <laughs> like that. You're such, you're such an idiot. <laughs> but she's she's talking to everybody because she is this probe and she has been sent to learn on behalf of V'ger. And Kirk and everybody realize that V'ger is seeking the creator, and V'ger's function is just simply to find the creator. And then briefly we get this kind of subplot that emerges where Decker is trying to get whatever's left of the real Ilea to remember real Ilea's memories so that they can make direct contact with this entity. But then it falls flat because he does sort of get through to her. But then she says, well, V'ger doesn't know who the creator is. And I, I, I've just been sent here to look for him too. But while this is going on, Spock jettisons himself into the anus in a spacesuit, and there's this weird kind of trippy bit where he's flying past images of planets and then flies into a, a like a naked Ilea's neck. Yeah, I get a Willy Wonka vibe like in that scene when they go through the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I'm surprised there wasn't like a headless chicken, you know, in space in that little trip. There was, but James Doohan ate it. <laughs> Oh, Didn't even put poor, any salt on it. What's he doing? Uh, poor guy. <laughs> so yeah, so Spock flies through and he kind of puts together that V'ger is uh, is this artificial intelligence. It is this machine and it, it casts him out. I guess Kirk pulls him in from space and Spock just says so much of the same. He's looking for the creator. He wants to know where the creator is. and But I want to know what he wants to know. Like it's all just like... Why are you talking like, like Neil Breen? <laughs> Uh, yeah, 
Matt Hicks, this, this part of the movie is just breaking my brain because it's so fucking boring. Maybe that's why. Somehow, the Enterprise has been flying alongside this V'ger orifice, and it has made its way to Earth. V'ger sends out these, like, radio waves to the creator, which is Earth, and Earth doesn't respond to it because it's using, like, this defunct form of communication. So V'ger sends out these probes, which are going to kill all the carbon-based life forms on Earth because V'ger thinks that these life forms have destroyed the creator or have, like, or are stopping the creator from communicating with V'ger. Kirk and the crew decide that hey, we'll kind of pull a bit of a bluff here. We'll tell V'ger that we know who the creator is, but only if we can tell V'ger in person so that Ilya will have to take us there. Yeah, he learns from the episode, the aforementioned episode with Clint Howard, the Corbomite maneuver, that sometimes a bluff is the best strategy. Yeah, and that's why Kirk is the de facto leader of the Enterprise or the captain of the Enterprise. I mean, I mean, it's because Shatner is not accepting a supporting role, really. That's, that's the <laughs> that's, real reason. That's exactly it, right? <laughs> Oh, shit. That's why he's never been in, like, another Star Trek. And it's also, we don't want the star power of James Doohan to captain this <laughs> ship. <laughs> He'd be pulling up to, like, <laughs> to like truck stop bars, you know? Handing around sandwiches to everybody on board. Yeah, there's. Disgusting I can't there. imagine the drunken decisions being made by a James Doohan captain ship. Is the only other Star Trek movie that Shatner's been in, like after the original cast, was that uh, Generations with Patrick Stewart? Yeah, he's done after Generations. Nimoy's the only one in the Abrams yeah. movies, but also almost everyone's dead at that point, except for, I actually don't know if Nichelle Nichols is alive. Yeah, I, she's I still alive. So is, and so I guess Takei's still alive. Walter Koenig. Okay, so it's just DeForest Kelly and James Doohan, really. Yeah, it's really the big ones, I guess. Well, the big ones and James Doohan, that's for sure. <laughs> Ah, uh, you're so mean. Uh, he was a vet, you know. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> have you seen Star Trek Six? That man can't fit in a uniform. No, yeah, poor guy. Poor guy. He almost needed one of those, like, hover chairs from Wally. you yeah. <laughs> know? Yeah, he's got that look to him. <laughs> anyway, you know, let, let's, 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 let's just power through this. They show up to this, to V'ger. They finally find V'ger, and V'ger is got himself planted in this weird kind of futuristic-y-looking metallic pit that looks like a, like an asteroid crater or something, I don't know. And in the center of this crater is this old-looking probe thing, and it says V-G-E-R on it. But there's a big space between the V and the G-E-R. So Kirk walks up, and he's like rubbing all this soot off the nameplate, and he's like, V? Oh... Why? And it turns out that it's Voyager 6, which is a fictional probe that was sent by Earth in like the 1990s. Yeah, they they slipped us the Zardoz twist. <laughs> right? I, yeah, I, I, I want to yeah. say I've, that kind of th- twist is in like other things. I just, but it stands out to me in Zardoz. I guess, I guess it's sort of red rum in a way. Red rum, the Shining, yeah. it's kind of <laughs> like that. Well, this is when Kirk and everybody find out that it was the purpose of Voyager to learn all it could and transmit all the info back to Earth. And they speculate that this probe had crashed on a planet that was made of machines and that these machines built a ship for Voyager to fulfill its mission and to transmit information back to Earth. But on the way that it, uh, like when it was coming back to Earth, it somehow gained sentience because it was like absorbing all of these informations and peoples and planets and things. So pretty much the only way to stop V'ger from destroying the Earth and getting it to realize that the humans are the ones that made V'ger, they have to combine the old probe with like with a human 
to, to kind of make it understand somehow. They, they need to find somebody that has all the knowledge of what's going on and have Voyager suck them up. And Decker offers himself up because Ilya, the yeah, love of his Yeah, I was going to say Shatner doesn't know what's going on. He's not in this <laughs> scenario. No, he's like, I just want to fly my ship and get paid. Decker volunteers, and he mainly volunteers, I guess, to save Earth, but also because he wants to spend the rest of his incorporeal existence with Ilya. Because the same yeah, thing well, here. you know, he's 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 got a little bit of wood, and you know, we can <laughs> always take him to someone who's known for deforesting. Right, <laughs> right there, he's he's right there. <laughs> That's pretty much the end of the movie. Kirk and everybody get back on the Enterprise. The world is saved, and uh, <laughs> Walter Koenig has a career once again. Exactly, yeah, and same with you know three quarters of the, well, actually the whole cast. And, Except uh, for Nimoy, because he, you know, yeah, because he hated it. <laughs> well, no, not I don't. I don't even know if he hates it. I'm just saying, like Nimoy seems like he maybe he didn't need the Star Trek movies to continue to have a successful career. But we don't know. <laughs> we don't live in an alternate reality where Star Trek ended in 1969. Of course, it's still going somehow. Well, eh, it's barely going. And also, speaking of barely going, so is the aged <laughs> yeah, I was original say, cast. Shatner, yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, we might want to cut this because we never know when by the time this episode's out. But yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the movie ends with them all flying away in the in the Enterprise. They're patting themselves on the back because they made a new life form, and by they, Decker sacrificed himself to make a new life form, and they're gonna go out and fly around the stars like they did in the '60s. Just a little bit less acid this time around. Yeah, yeah. So, Patrick, my friend, I know again not the biggest Star Trek fan, but uh, what did you think of this rewatch of Star Trek: The Motion Picture? I mean, I think you're selling me on the star trek you know i i I am a star trek fan i don't love the show but i mean i like the original series a good deal i'm currently nearly done with season three of tng i might be completely done with the show by the time this episode comes out who knows so yeah i i and i've seen all the movies at this point even though a lot of them honestly aren't worth watching (laughs) yeah and i'm tempted to say this one is one of those but I think with the Shatner performance, this fun score, beautiful visuals, there's still a decent amount to kind of take from this. I mean, I don't think it's a great movie overall. It's got major pacing issues. It feels like an episode of the show just stretched out for better and for worse. Mm -hmm. It's not the most entertaining movie, but, you know, it's decent. It's good. It's really weird because when I used to watch this as a kid with my dad all the time, I loved this movie. But I also forgot that I had always fallen asleep <laughs> like an hour in. <laughs> and I always woke up at the end. Watching it as an adult, again, I mean, and I just to clarify, I have seen the whole thing before multiple times and I still like right. this movie. But rewatching it this time, I was just like so tired after like the hour and eight minute mark, I think. And it's just them hovering in front of this space anus for an hour, not doing anything. Right. As you brought up, that does feel like an episode from like the original series. And that is like the stuff that I hate from the original series. I was going to say, well, it feels like the original series. It's also like the least attractive or exciting bit of foreplay you've ever seen. (laughs) Send Nimoy in. (laughs) But no, it's, it's, it's... It's exactly that to me. The whole second half is very slow. It has that awful pacing throughout the movie where you get Mm -hmm. these long beauty shots of the models that just kind of completely remove you from the story and what's actually going on. And not just that, but even like when Nimoy, because the first bit is kind of slow, even though I like the first act, I like Shatner coming back to the ship and everything. 
oh, Nimoy's finally aboard, you, you, you're thinking like, okay, the movie's really going to pick up now. But then mm-hmm. it doesn't. It just it <laughs> continues with its uh, snail pace after that. Because yeah. because we've been waiting for Nimoy because I don't know about you. Well, you're well, actually, I do because you've proclaimed yourself a Bones guy. <laughs> but, I mean, Nimoy is the fan favorite. He's the most yeah. beloved, most known thing about Star Trek. Everyone knows the live long and prosper his his weird eyebrows and everything's so like so so okay we want Spock and then he shows up and I don't want to say he doesn't do anything he's for a while he's the only person that does anything um until Decker but yeah I don't know you you just kind of that's that like fan service kind of moment where keep in mind I mean this is ten years after the show's done so this is your first time seeing Spock mm-hmm. in ten years and you think when he's back like oh yeah a joyful reunion but then it also it's I mean it's in character for him not to care obviously and I like yeah. that I like that this movie does a good job of you know this I think this could be a decent introduction to Star Trek it's not a good introduction to Star Trek in the sense that I think it's kind of boring but I think yeah. it's a good introduction to Star Trek you know someone who's never seen an episode of the show doesn't really know what it is hasn't seen a movie in the sense that we get like we understand Vulcans in really well in this movie it kind of reminds you it, with the little Vulcan um, ritual thing in the beginning mm-hmm. and then even when he's aboard even though it's clear everyone else knows him and loves him like he doesn't care it's like okay i understand vulcans just from that so yeah i don't know i don't want to say spock's a weak point but i don't really want to say he's a strength in this movie either oh uh, yeah I, I understand that and i think just to kind of quickly reiterate for me really the only bad things about this movie are the pacing and i guess some of the effects you know they, they just look really dated and, and silly but i can't really hate the movie for that but something i can dislike the movie for is the pacing which is the big problem that's the that's definitely the biggest problem i actually don't have a problem with the effects i understand what you're saying yeah i i, I don't mind it i think a lot of it especially because like i don't, I don't even know if some cinematography is the right word but like things are shot in a really interesting engaging way with the visuals be it with model shots or when it's like all those things going on with the lights and colors mm-hmm. and stuff it, it, it is a gorgeous movie to look at so in that sense i'm kind of like okaying a lot of the you know maybe not the best effects in the world kind of thing yeah and then kind of kind of jumping off your point about about the spock reintroduction and, and and the whole reintroduction to the old cast i think it's actually a really good movie for fans of the tv show and I, I, I totally agree with your point this wouldn't be a good starting point for somebody who knows nothing about star trek but even for people with like that's a basic... like the opposite of my point. I'm saying it's a decent, it's a bad starting point in the sense that it's just not the most exciting movie. But it's a good starting point. Oh yes, in the yeah. sense that it shows you a lot of like what Star Trek is. Yes. Okay. Yes, and I agree with yes. that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And as as for big fans or just fans of the show, I think this is a fantastic movie. And you're right where Spock is like the fan favorite. But I think it's really cool how he came back the way he did and where he was very cold and unfeeling. Yeah, I, I like that moment. That's the best Spock moment in the movie, I would say. Oh, for sure, yeah. And then, I mean, again, I love Bones coming back as Disco Bones, big beard, gold medallion on his around his neck. He's like, God damn it, Jim, they drafted me. And Kirk's like, hey, actually, it was me. He goes, oh, God damn you. I don't want to come onto their ship. It's like they... <laughs> they pulled him out of the retirement home. And, I know. know, yeah, yeah. And then you... No, Bones, Bones is a, just a fun character because he's constantly angry. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and DeForest Kelly is just very, very funny in this role. <laughs> yeah. And the ending after, you know, Decker's disappeared and everything, Spock kind of turns back to his normal 
the original series self and you get that shot that the fans were waiting for of Bones, Spock, and Kirk standing together and saying, hey, let's go off and do some more adventuring. And they're all kind of mm-hmm. laughing. And, you know, I'm sure Bones made some kind of comment about Spock being a Vulcan, a cold, unfeeling Vulcan. And Spock was like, yes, you're right, Doctor. You know, but I, yeah, for those that aren't that familiar with the show, like you think like, OK, you know, there's Sulu, there's Uhura, there's like all these characters. The show was mostly just the main three. It was yeah. Bones or McCoy. I don't think we've even said the name McCoy yet. Yeah, Doctor McCoy. Yeah, Doctor McCoy. We get we. It's Bones, Kirk, and Spock are like the main players in virtually every episode. You get you get the occasional Scotty episode. Yeah, it's always those three, and it's always Spock is cold and heartless, and and Bones is kind of overly emotional, and he gets angry at Spock a lot and yells at him and makes fun of him, but like doesn't really hate him either. It's kind of a fun relationship <laughs> where he's yeah. like j- making fun of him, he's joking <laughs> about him, but like Spock doesn't care, can't react to that kind of thing. You know, Spock, I'm an escalator. Ah, damn it, I'm a doctor, not an escalator. <laughs> Give me a hand here. <laughs> Well, no, and then also going to your point about Shatner. Yeah, I think he's a great actor in this movie. I think he plays the part really well. I think it was probably, I think he probably really enjoyed getting to play the part of Kirk again because he is this uh, egocentric person. <laughs> though I do like Shatner. If I ever met Shatner, I would be beside myself because I think he's super cool. Uh, though for some reason, a lot of Canadians dislike him. And, uh, well, I guess a lot of people dislike him. <laughs> That's no, true, yeah. The- <laughs> but but you know what the weird thing was though cuz I I agree with you he's great actor in this movie he was he played like that sober stern captain really okay. well like like that military captain really well yeah um, Can't use yes. that word for Scotty of course but I got gotcha. you but oh shit was like oh yeah I read this review on uh, on the motion picture like most of the critical reviews were pretty iffy on the movie they're like yeah it's all right the first hour is really cool the second hour is pretty shit the acting yeah. is fine yada 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 but this one critic i don't remember who it was he, he said shatner's performance was absolutely terrible he's a terrible actor he can't act and then he said i forget the words he used but he said shatner's also terribly out of shape he is so out of shape that he's probably the worst out of shape leading actor i've ever seen in my life and i'm like what <laughs> like it's not like he was like he's well not this james was Duham, before you know? <laughs> james gandolfini and the sopranos of course but yeah no well yeah but james duan's not a leading man we know exactly that. yeah yeah i don't know i can't I, he doesn't i don't see that with shatner i mean we all know like Shatner was always a little bit heavier probably than he should have been even going back to the original he series. always wore a girdle from like season two i think on of the original oh, yeah? series he was wearing he does girdle. like he wears like an ash versus evil dead type like corset kind of thing that's awesome. But uh, yeah, that's it, really. I, I like, I really like this movie. But again, the first hour is definitely much better than the second. But yeah, you know, j- just to kind of like wrap it up here, any shortcomings that this movie has, I want to chalk it up to Roddenberry being really weird and nitpicky, and okay. that he wrote the original script, I guess, which would have been the pilot for Phase Two that this turned into. And I, I, I don't know. I just feel like if there's anybody to blame. It's mostly Roddenberry. But it's more fun to blame Shatner. Yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) But no, Shatner's the best part of it, but let's blame him anyways. Well, my friend, are you ready to move on to uh, Theater of Blood? Absolutely. All right, so Theater of Blood, released in 1973. This is a British horror comedy that in its own way is kind of a almost like a remake of the abominable dr fives in terms of like the plot which we featured that movie a while ago and it's it's a movie about a supposedly dead vincent price (laughs) killing people in overly elaborate ways inspired by books 
in Fives, it was the Bible. And in Theater (laughs) of Blood, it's Shakespeare. And it makes a lot more sense here. I think this is a much better movie than Fives. I, I know I said that way back when, but I said, like, there's just, like, a better version of the Abominable Dr. Fives that exists, and it's Theater of Blood. Yeah, I don't you know did your say that, and you're totally this. right. You're totally okay, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a very entertaining movie. This is, like, I don't know why this isn't, like, a cult classic. I was, I was thinking about this recently. It's, like, you get, you know, oh, top five horror star of all time in vincent price mm-hmm. who tends to make a bit more culty cult classic-y type movies you know he's not making you know bride of frankenstein like you know like an all-time or psycho like the all one of some of the all-time greatest horror movies like no his movies are a little schlockier a little sillier than that again scooby-doo you know he was in scooby-doo i okay i'll take your word for it we've got two bond girls We've got just an outrageously fun premise, some fun like setup for kills and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know why this movie isn't better remembered. I even think Fives is probably better remembered than this. They're like I think it was Fangoria did something recently about like the fiftieth anniversary of the abominable Doctor Fives, and I'm thinking like I'm marking that down. They better do that for in in a couple of years for <laughs> Theater of Blood. You know the only reason I can think of as to why it isn't as big as Fives. It's is Shakespeare it, just a little yeah. off-putting? I I, I, I think that? it is to a lot of people. I think a lot of people hear Shakespeare and they go, "Oh no, high school English." Yeah, but it's Shakespeare with Vincent Price. This is the role Vincent Price was born to play. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. I actually looked this up. I, I was or I was trying to find out because I had always heard Vincent Price described as like a classically trained actor. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, what that means is the dude played Shakespeare on stage. <laughs> I couldn't find any record of it. I maybe maybe he did maybe he didn't he definitely feels like he should have like he's got the voice he's got the rhythm he's got that kind of classic theater type persona he would have been doing Shakespeare on stage in like the 40s right yeah it would have been like because he's in movies at least going back to the 40s because he's in uh the film noir classic Laura he's in the in the invisible man returns 1940 so he was acting back then yeah so 30s or 40s probably is when he would have done it if he did it And to my knowledge, he didn't do any Shakespeare films other than this. And you might say, okay, so he's never done Shakespeare on film. Well, basically all of his dialogue in this movie is is stuff Shakespeare wrote, which is pretty fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's great. The movie opens with a stuffy old British man. This is after the opening credits, which feature like silent film Shakespeare death scenes, which is kind of neat. But we get the stuffy old British guy who gets a phone call about some vagrants in a building that I guess he owns or runs or something. And it's it's like an abandoned warehouse. It's disgusting looking. He goes up there. There's these bums. They're disgusting looking. Uh, And he tries to shoo them away with the help of a constable until they all start ganging up on him and they're they're pulling out weapons and they start stabbing him. And then it's revealed that the constable is, well, technically we don't know he's not a constable, but the constable is Vincent Price, who's a master (laughs) of disguise that he is. And this is the the Julius Caesar death scene, of course, because we get the... um, It it, it is March 15th. I, I don't remember if we learned that earlier. I know we definitely... It's confirmed later. It might yeah, be, yeah. When, when might he's leaving the earlier. house, his wife is like, "Drive safe, honey." And he's like, "What? What?" And she's like, "It's the Ides of March." Oh yeah, she's like, oh, that's March fifteenth. Right. Yes. <laughs> well, and and his wife has one of the best Shakespeare tie-ins too, because she like warns him about because she had like a bad dream or something, which is very Julius Caesar's wife in that yeah. play has has like visions. But yeah, so 
After this, a group of theater critics who are like getting together for drinks and stuff, they learn that their colleague is dead. And one one of them, played by Ian Hendry, whose name is Devlin, goes to the you know the scene of the crime. I don't know why. I don't know why they just let this guy <laughs> come come <laughs> come look at this. But whatever, you know, it's a movie. And he's examining the crime, and he notes the Julius Caesar poster that he sees that had the actor Richard Lionheart in it. And the police officer, the inspector in charge of investigating this, who's played by Irish actor Milo O'Shea, who I, I can't say I'm a big fan of. I mean, he's a fine actor, but he's Leopold Bloom in the 1962 Joseph Strix Ulysses film, the oh, adaptation okay. of the greatest novel ever. Uh, so he plays the greatest character ever in, in that. Sorry, Bones. <laughs> um, no, he's here. He, he he and his eyebrows showed up for this movie. And um, he's also in an episode of Frasier. He plays like, he plays like Frasier and Niles is like psychiatrist when they were growing up, I think. <laughs> but anyways, he, he remarks upon like, oh, Lionheart. I always thought he was a great actor. And then Devlin's like, nah, he sucked. I never gave him a good review or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, are they talking about are they talking about Lionheart or Shatner? Oh, well, you know, yeah, maybe 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 Devlin was the one that wrote that one review you were talking about. Shatner's fat and he can't act. <laughs> also, just like minor minor correction, his name's Edward Lionheart because his daughter's name is Edwina, and I was oh, like, that's right. Well, why was why like, is it, oh yeah, I'm thinking of Richard the Lionheart. You're right. I know. Not, I, ca- not, I they just call him Lionheart most exactly. In my whole notes, I had him Richard, and I was like, oh fuck, his name's Edward. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so, anyways, we get some of. Edward Lionheart performing on stage to a to a crowd of bums and I will say this is um and I keep using the word bums you know homeless people whatever I mean they're movie homeless people they're 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 bums they're movie bums but I will say like with this movie you come for Vincent Price you come for Shakespeare you come for Shakespeare death scenes but you stay for the bums really they're they (laughs) kind of steal the show at moments and they are disgusting they look like the kids from the musical Oliver, all grown up. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 really actually quite gritty in the scene in the scene where Lionheart meets the bums, which is a flashback. You really see it because it's just so dirty and disgusting. But you also see it in the Julius Caesar scene too. These people are just like mm-hmm. it feels like you're in a crack house when you see these people. I mean, I don't <laughs> even. I, I can't even really say it's authentic no, or it's, like, it's... like realistic, but it's just incredibly like just disgusting. And that's kind of what I love about it. I, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, Lionheart performs in front of the bums. He's got his stage manager who's rocking like a disco stew kind of Afro thing. Like bones. <laughs> and it, it becomes apparent that I guess he's paying the bums in, in alcohol. <laughs> basically to get them to watch him and you know they cheer him on when he when he performs and stuff but like I, they don't care they, they really don't <laughs> care they care enough to murder for him which is yeah exactly crazy. yeah <laughs> the stage manager then lures another critic over to lionheart and this one this critic is named snipe mm-hmm. and uh, he's wesley snipe <laughs> so snipe shows up to the theater having heard that you know actually lionheart's really alive hang on, he'll tell you the story. It's really fascinating. And Lionheart starts talking to the guy and <laughs> says like, hey, you know, you were, I'm telling my story to you because you were always so fair to me in your 
reviews and stuff and he's like oh yeah yeah i seem to recall having written this about you and really like he was like the others he was incredibly negative on lionheart and eventually lionheart throws that back you at know, him i really like this scene because i like all the characters involved in the scene but also i like when that critic shows up he sees that lionheart has a um, has like a folder open with all of his like playbills yes yeah. And then there's reviews that he's cut out of the paper next to them. And he pours through them to find like a good review he's written of Lionheart. Yes. <laughs> and then uh, and then Lionheart's entrance via that like hydraulic lift or whatever. It's just so cool and so mm-hmm. creepy and menacing. Yeah. So Lionheart eventually has this guy killed. He shoots him up again, that hydraulic lift kind of thing. And this is the one that's beheaded, right? No, he's pierced no. with a spear. Yeah, he's pierced with a spear, which is pretty cool. No, the yeah, beheading's later. Beheading is a memorable scene. This is the <laughs> Troilus and Cressida death scene. And again, Lionheart, he's doing his Shakespeare speeches while he kills people. Full disclosure, Troilus and Cressida is one of the few Shakespeare plays, one of the like the two or three that I haven't read. But this is Hector's death at the hands of Achilles. I will say I have read Troilus and Crusade, or Crusade, which is Chaucer's version of this tale. And I'll just say for any of you that were think that think like, oh, you know, Shakespeare couldn't have written these plays because Shakespeare, you know, he's just like had an elementary education. How how did he understand the classics and stuff? He didn't because the Hector Achilles stuff happens like 15 years after <laughs> Troilus dies. So this is not an accurate <laughs> adaptation of, of the of the Greek legend. OK, Shakespeare's misunderstanding of the classics it comes up constantly. I think he has one of the characters quotes Aristotle in there and like refers to Aristotle by name at one point. Like <laughs> Aristotle, he was alive like a thousand years after this or something like that. Good job, Shakespeare, idiot. Hack. Yeah. So, I think. so, so yeah. So we've got two insane writers: Roddenberry, Shakespeare, two hacks, and uh, two, <laughs> two egomaniacal lead actors too. Oh my god! In this, this case, a fictional one. In the other case, it's Shatner. So kind of <laughs> some interesting connections to be made here. A couple of out of shape dudes. There's the guy with the two dogs, like the two little poodles. Oh and yeah, James Doohan. Yeah. Yeah. James Doohan. <laughs> Get me. I, I want a James Duen type in this role. <laughs> lots of lots of drinking too, with both Duen and the bums. Oh. <laughs> the other critics and Inspector. I think his name is Inspector Boot, the Milo O'Shea, Leopold Bloom character. Mm-hmm. They're all at the funeral. Lionheart's there. He, he's he's in his gravedigger disguise. <laughs> And while they're there, this is the funeral. This is a bit confusing at first, but this is the funeral for the first guy. This is the funeral for the Julius Caesar death. Yeah, yeah. And while they're there, while the funeral's wrapping up, a horse comes running across, dragging the body of Wesley Snipes. (laughs) And then so after this is like Inspector Boot had kind of already suspected the, the killing had something to do with this guy as a critic at this point he's like yeah plenty of people actually have motivation to kill critics because a bad review can sink a career and stuff like that and yeah. so he starts talking taking this a bit more seriously this scene was done really well with like everybody standing there next to the uh <laughs> like next Big to the mausoleum. building yeah and then this you just see like the longest approach ever like this long straight gravel drive and this horse mm-hmm. is just galloping down it at full speed with this body attached to it just looks so good it was it was very theatrical which is the point i mean it's the opposite of theatrical in the sense that if you're using that much space it's like <laughs> literally up. the opposite of oh get out of here 
<laughs> but yeah, so Devlin also spots a young, beautiful woman, and he's like, I recognize her from somewhere, and he, he walks up to her and sees that she is Dame Diana Rigg, and she's putting flowers at her father's grave. And I don't know if you caught this statue at his father's grave. Did you, did you recognize who that was? No. You might not even know this person. It's Richard Burbage, the um, preeminent tragedy actor in like Shakespeare's time. Oh, no, I didn't. I definitely didn't know that. <laughs> I know the theater that where the bums are hanging out and where, where Lionheart, you know, his kind of his lair, that's supposed to be the Burbage Theater. It's re- in real life. It was just like some theater that they tore down like a year or two after this movie. It was an abandoned theater. And it, I mean, it's perfect setting for that kind of thing. They're, they're probably worth They probably had to kick out actual bums to shoot those scenes. With the <laughs> I fake bet, bums, yeah. Bums and pigeons. And... <laughs> so, so Devlin talks with Edwina Lionheart, a.k.a. Dame... Diana Rigg, a.k.a. Olena Tyrell from Game of Thrones, a.k.a. Teresa DiVincenzo, a.k.a. Teresa Bond. Because yes. the only woman that Bond got hitched with, a.k.a. I don't know her character's name in the Avengers. It's it's not Black Widow. It's it's the other Avengers. So I don't know. She's in the Avengers. So is uh, Devlin. So is Ian Hendry. Got two Avengers, <laughs> oh my God. Avengers actors in this. Star-studded cast is what I hear. It actually is a pretty good cast because we get, um, well, we get Madeline Smith plays Devlin's secretary, who she's um, is actually a very small role. She's like just in the background of a lot of scenes, not doing anything. My opinion, severe underutilization of her, but she's in a lot of Hammer horror movies. She was in Live and Let Die. She's the woman that. Bond is with in like the closet and he uses his uh, magnetic watch to open oh, her dress. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when when um M and Money Penny show up, she's she's that one. She's kind of she's a Bond girl in the sense that she's a girl in a Bond movie in one scene. <laughs> Arguably the biggest name in this movie is the old-ish lady who gets massages. That is What's her name? I know she was like a huge like oh. bombshell in like the the 40s. She was kind of like the British. It was er, she was earlier than that, but she was kind of the British like Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield type. I'm just looking up the cast for um Theater of Blood. Yeah, it's what's her what's her name? I don't know. Oh, Deanna Doors. Or That's Diana it, yeah. Doors. I think yeah, I think Diana it's Doors. pronounced D- I think I hear it Deanna. Deanna sounds better at any rate. I'll believe it. Yeah, yeah, she was a huge deal in like the late forties, early fifties, you know, the pinup kind of thing. So yeah. We got Leopold Bloom, we got the Abominable Doctor Fives, we got Elena Tyrell, and we got some other guy from the Avengers, and we got Deanna Doors herself. By the way, before we go on to another scene or anything, when we meet Leinhardt's daughter and learn that her name is Edwina at that moment, I'm like, oh, dude, Lionheart's a prick. Name your daughter after yourself, Edwina. He he pulled the George Jones. He named his daughter Georgetta Jones. I thought, well, there's also the George Foreman. I thought you were going to say oh. George <laughs> Foreman because he had George George the Second, George the Third, George the Third, George the Fourth, and then I think he had a Georgia or a George, Georgina something. Georgina. Like that. Yeah. There's look, also <laughs> Georgina's acceptable, but when you name a girl Georgetta, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's pushing it. Meet Georgetta. It's like the Jetsons. <laughs> and there's also um, there's also oh. Donald Trump. He's got a junior, and then yeah. he's got <laughs> Ivanka. You know, because his wife was Ivana. Like, what? What are we doing here, guys? 
Yeah, I always thought it was there's something incredibly egotistical about naming a son or a daughter like after you. It's just like, come on, get, this is 40 billion names out there. Try a different one. <laughs> Try Fibes. Yes, that's a great name. Or Bones. Oh, man. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> so after this, Lionheart and the stage manager, who, you know, I'm just going to, I don't think I'm spoiling a damn thing when I say Diana Rigg is the stage manager here. I'm sorry. Yeah, not spoiling anything. That's not a spoiler. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's actually a decent disguise, but I mean, there's no hiding the voice. No, exactly. It's, it's very clearly a woman. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those of you that wanted to be shocked by <laughs> one of the film's twists. It's really not a twist, but it's also it's a very Shakespeare thing, though, too, to have Diana Rigg or no, no, it's just to have like the cross dressing. Yes, well, a, yeah. in Shakespeare's day, any person playing a woman is a boy is a teenage boy so there's cross-dressing in that sense but there's also like all shakespeare i don't say all shakespeare comedies an awful lot of shakespeare comedies have someone a woman dressing up as a man and then that's where a lot of the comedy comes from mm-hmm. and and it's always like again in the plays like no one ever suspects anything so it's kind of like they're kind of doing that with this movie even though like we all can tell the other characters can't you know that's kind of fun but anyways, Vincent Price and his daughter go to, or they sneak into the home of another critic, this time in a big chest, which I, I'll admit the setup for this isn't the most satisfying because, the, the, it, again, it's an old critic and he's, he's got his nagging wife and she's like, now what's this thing doing in our bedroom? <laughs> and they, they try to open it for like five seconds and then it's just like, ah, whatever, we'll handle it in the morning. It's, it's kind of a lazy setup. Yeah. But at night when they're asleep, the two Lionhearts crawl out and they start beheading this dude after in uh, injecting the wife with something to keep her asleep. Yeah, this is another Shakespeare play actually that I haven't read. Uh, it's Sim- Cymbeline. I've also or no, Cymbeline. They call it, they pronounce it Cymbeline in this movie. I've also heard Cymbeline. This might be one of my actually. This is probably my favorite scene in the movie. It's a fun scene. I actually got a barrel of laughs out of when they started sawing into uh, the critic's neck and Price is like. Bucket, bucket. Yeah, oh bucket. yeah. I like, like when he gets frustrated. <laughs> the stage manager like rolling for his eyes. <laughs> yeah, that that is a good Vincent Price moment. Yeah, and they keep on dosing and I, the wife. I also like. I also like in the morning when they discover the body because the maid comes in and screams. The wife, you know, rolls over and discovers she screams. And so so the maid screams and faints. And then the wife sees it and screams and tries to, like, jump out of the bed. So the head falls to the ground and it falls, like, by the eyes of the of the maid. So so right when she's coming to, (laughs) she screams again. Like, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, the scene was done really well. And as you like, as you pointed out, it was kind of like a stupid setup. But the payoff was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's um it's very like the collector is kind of like this where it's just like boxes. Just, I don't know if you oh, ever saw yeah, that movie. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't is, really is, like it. Is that the British movie where he has butterflies and he lures people to his house? It's not British, but yeah, it's um oh. it's, it's not a British movie, but yeah, it's the butterfly one. Uh, but yeah, the chests just show up in people's rooms, and in that case, they get thrown into them. In this case, it's you know, but it's the same general idea. Just a, a chest randomly appears in a house, and it's like, "What are we doing out of here?" Wait, is wait, is this the collector from two thousand nine or? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was like oh seven, oh nine, something like that. You uh, know, that was written to be a Saw prequel. Oh, really? Well, because I was thinking of the collector from nineteen sixty-five. Is there a butterfly-related yeah. collector in the nineteen sixties? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the hell? I don't remember anything about a about a chest because Austin and I, you know, good buddy Austin, he came over once. We watched it, and I fell asleep. Like. 
<laughs> like 30 then minutes why'd you in. bring it up if it had nothing to this i'm talking about the chest and you're like oh yeah that's well because well, like, you said no. the collector and this one's called the collector too but it's from 65 and it's got butterflies and i'm pretty sure it's got a chest in it <laughs> yeah because the collector is like i I'm, technically it might not be butterflies but i know he's like obsessed with insects so i'm picturing i think there are butterflies but anyways, i don't know that was written to be a saw prequel and then the people running saw are like we'd be ashamed to have anything to do with this movie (laughs) (laughs) and we just really saw six so (laughs) so at this point devlin is really the main person cooperating with the investigation he's he's making the connection that he's like hey listen i know this sounds crazy but the order of the deaths follows the orders of the plays in Lionheart's final season of Shakespeare. You had Julius Caesar, you had Troilus and Cressida, you had Cymbeline. And he's like, Lionheart's dead, I guess, but they never but we never found the body. And they talk about what happened. This is where we get our flashback to Lionheart. So so the whole thing is that there was a major award, you know, the British they what do they they call it like the Critics Award, but you know, yeah. it's an Olivier yeah. Award, it's a Tony, you know, whatever kind of thing. And it's decided on by these like eight or nine critics. And that season, Lionheart felt he had his greatest Shakespearean accomplishment, you know, a season of all Shakespeare. But the critics decided to give the award to some kind of young up-and-coming actor. They said, even though it was like everyone kind of assumed it would go to Lionheart, Lionheart even supposedly stood up when uh, they were announcing the award, <laughs> like he was ready to take <laughs> How it. How embarrassing. <laughs> oh, no, that'd be so great. That'd be, it's, a, it's the uh, La La Land situation all over again. <laughs> Yeah. Devlin does admit, too, at this point that he's like, no, we kind of did take that opportunity to just kind of embarrass him. And it was because none of them really liked Lionheart and not that he was a bad actor. Devlin even says, like, he was a good actor. I just, you know, found it annoying that, you know, he always did Shakespeare like that. He says to Lionheart's daughter, he says, listen, like the great, the greatest actors are ones that can do both the old and the new. Your father never did anything but the old stuff. Mm hmm. But yeah, he does admit that they just kind of embarrass him. And we see this flashback where Lionheart arrives at this beautiful Thames side, like high rise apartment, which I think is just Devlin's home. And all the critics are there and Lionheart shows up and he grabs the award and he's like, this is mine. And then he starts, he wanders outside when his daughter comes to stop him and he starts giving the to be or not to be speech. Great scene, Which is great because even you look at that playbill or that poster, and it's like, okay, Hamlet isn't on there. They still found a way to work in the to be around, not to be soliloquy. So, like, Vincent Price is doing all of this Shakespeare stuff. And at the end of the soliloquy, he jumps off the side of the building. We got a fun little dummy shot for a quick second. And, yeah, it's great. And while this is happening, or this is after another critic has been lured into uh, the theater by Edwina. This time, Edwina not in disguise because she's just showing up as Diana Rigg, beautiful mm-hmm. woman, and she meets him, and he starts, like, creepily kind of hitting on her. And this is, like, a, again, all these people are old dudes. Well, there's one woman, but they're all old. And this dude <laughs> is just, like, he's creepy. Yeah. He sm- looks like he'd smell like tuna. You know what I mean? No, I like, really Like, we on old people eat lots of tuna sandwiches or something, and you're like, hmm... I know no, you're old. I, I'm, still like still you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm still not with you. Okay. I'm still not with you. I really don't know. 
But anyways, her reason to get him to the theater now, at this point, we've got Inspector Boot is sending police officers to pick up all of these critics and get them to a safe place. But she's like, hey, you know, that other critic that died, Snipe, was a great friend of mine. And he used to always, he and his wife would always watch our performances and give us reviews and stuff. And it's like, would you be willing to do that for us? We've got this like underground theater thing. Could you just give us a few notes before we are actually ready to perform in front of an audience? And he's like, yeah, sure. But really, he's thinking like, I'm going to steal this woman from George Lazenby. (laughs) So they leave, and right when they're leaving is when the cops show up to pick him up. And this is probably my favorite scene in the movie, the um, the Merchant of Venice scene. Because she, she says the whole thing is living theater. It's where the audience participates in the act. And they have the famous scene when Shylock demands to take the pound of flesh from Antonio. And they have this critic playing Antonio. They give him a script, and they're like, okay, we've made slight alterations to the text. Mm-hmm. but most of it is as it is and I, I like this is a really well acted scene i like this critic guy i like his kind of he, he has no real idea what he's doing but then he like gains confidence in his like acting when they encourage him to, like you know say, do it with more feeling and then as vincent price as edward lionheart as shylock it as it becomes clear that he's actually going to kill the guy how he goes from like what are we doing to like oh my god like (laughs) like there's a there's a great roller coaster of emotions from this actor i think he's really good in this scene oh absolutely yeah and and you're right creepy old guy (laughs) that hits on diana rig that moment of realization that that something's amiss is is great in that whole scene yeah they nail it here and i mean it wouldn't be as good too without vincent price being as maniacally awesome as he is too oh for sure yeah so they literally take a pound of flesh they cut his heart out and they weigh it which is which is a fun (laughs) conclusion of the scene and the heart is actually sent to devlin slash inspector boot and they get that when they're or when when they're talking over lionheart's how he died and everything like that and and then there's at the very end of the scene devlin's like yep it's lionheart all right you know, only he would have the audacity to rewrite Shakespeare. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I loved that line. That was great. <laughs> because they because they do remark about how, hey, no one actually dies in the Merchant of Venice, which is kind of cool. Like, maybe maybe we won't get a death here. And you know, too, the comedy in this movie is done pretty well, too. Like, all the all the comedic bits really hit. It's, it's that kind of dry British sarcastic humor that I think works really well for a movie like this. It's not, I mean, it, it's an over-the-top plot. Mm-hmm. But the comedy itself isn't really over the top. I mean, it's there's a few scenes I don't really like, but that, come to think of it, they're not really the comedy scenes actually. But no, you know, and if if you compare this with Fibes and that dry comedy, this is this does it so much better than Fibes, which is just like ridiculous. So then the next death scene we get, and I, I will say that I like because this next one is Richard the Third, and I like that we get a fun progression of the plays in which we're taking stuff from because we start with julius caesar which is you know an all-time classic everybody knows it it's one of the most famous deaths in all shakespeare at two (laughs) yeah brute all that stuff it's also at least back then at least this was true in america i don't know if this is true in britain but you know at least uh like now 
if you're going to teach kids, you know, kids, high school, whatever, Shakespeare, you're going to start them off with Romeo and Juliet. Back then, they started with Julius Caesar, at least, again, at least in America, or at least like the school that my dad went to, I know. Oh, so wow. I don't know when that change happened, but Julius Caesar, I think for a while was kind of maybe the best known Shakespeare play. And I mentioned we don't have Hamlet here. We don't have a Hamlet death. So we start off with Julius Caesar. We get two kind of obscure plays nobody really cares about. And we come back strong with The Merchant of Venice, you know, <laughs> ripping someone's heart out, which is pretty great. And then we get to, you know, Richard III, which not the most exciting death, but one of the all-time classic Shakespeare villains, one of the greatest literary villains ever. And obviously, we're going to throw in the famous Titus Andronicus death towards the end. And we're going to end it with King Lear, arguably Shakespeare's greatest play. But not in my personal opinion. Personally, it's not his greatest, but Richard III is my favorite Shakespeare play. So I dug this scene. This is with a critic going to a wine tasting. And he leaves the cop who's like watching him outside. And the wine tasting eventually goes down to the cellar. Uh, which is where Lionheart in costume as Richard III is, of course. <laughs> and then I like this as, as Lionheart approaches the guy. This is, at least for me, I didn't really realize until we're in the cellar that every other person at this wine tasting is a bum. Yeah, yeah. They they, they kind of like pulled the rug out from under you because he's walking into this like fancy kind of thing. And it's, it's also, I mean, we see price in Richard III makeup before this, but there's a fun little nod because the wine shop that he walks into is George Clarence. George Clarence's like wine winery or whatever. And the character that he ends up dying as here is George, Duke of Clarence, Richard III's brother. <laughs> so a fun oh, little great. Easter egg, if you will, which who started calling those Easter eggs? I don't understand that. You know, just, just a quick aside here. I think they were originally called Easter eggs because you would find them in video games. And the first hidden collectibles in video games, the first hidden things you could find were Easter eggs. Okay, well, it's a dumb term. I've always hated it. But yeah, I, I don't agree. know what else to, to call them, you know. <laughs> Anyways, Lionheart drowns him in the barrel of wine, just like George, Duke of Clarence, was drowned. It, it's like a good I said, kill. Not the and, most and... It's not the most exciting. I mean, it's 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 fine. I like the scene. I like I like the scene mostly because when he walks in there, you don't realize, you think it is, even though you know there's going to be some kind of Vincent Price shenanigans, you don't really notice <laughs> it's bums until later, which yeah. I think that's just beautiful. <laughs> and they're not even drinking wine. They're drinking that like fluorescent blue or yes. fluorescent purple kind of liquor that they're always drinking. Now, you know, the thing I do like about this scene, this might be one of the only scenes where Vincent Price has killed somebody and then made kind of like a joke about it, where he shoves him into this barrel of wine, seals him in, then he goes, <laughs> I hope he travels well. You know, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you would you talk about beer. you want more of that? You know? Or less Yeah. Well, I think that one was enough, and I appreciated it. <laughs> okay. Because he could have gone the, the Freddy Krueger wine pun and said bad year or something like that <laughs> he uh, could have gone the freddy krueger route yeah but you know vincent price made it classy you know like <laughs> i hope the wine travels well that's vincent price's mo he mm -hmm. plays in some of the silliest movies of all time but he's able to class them up just with his presence and again that classically trained you know asterisk on it because i can't really confirm if it's true <laughs> background <laughs> that he has just it just works so well especially for a movie like this where there's more than half the the movie's tongue is firmly in its cheek but there's <laughs> enough of like kind of a horrific edge to it too i think 
Oh, for sure, yeah. At this point, the police are questioning Edwina, and after a while, Devlin is like, no, it can't be Edwina. Like, I know she's a devoted daughter, but, like, this has to be Lionheart. I don't know how, but it's definitely him. And and then we have kind of a fun scene, but also kind of the least inspired scene. We have a little fencing match, and it's between Devlin and some guy. They're at a gym. And he's the guy he's fencing with, of course, does not have a little cap on his sword. And that's because it is Edward Lionheart, who (laughs) surprise, surprise, uh, mask at one point, you know, to reveal himself to Devlin and to the audience so that we will forget that it's a stuntman for 99 percent of this scene because they're (laughs) they're doing some fun stunts. And it's like, obviously, it's not 65 year old Vincent Price doing that. I'm sure Devlin isn't, you know, doing that stuff. But it's it's a fun kind of swashbuckling scene, but it is just we kind of just get to it. There's no real setup for it. It's just like it just happens. Yeah. And this is the Romeo and Juliet scene, of course. And this could easily be the Hamlet scene because there's a famous sword fight in Hamlet with a poisoned sword. There's sword fights and definitely more than just those two, but you know, <laughs> we didn't we didn't we didn't squeeze Hamlet in here. We're instead doing Romeo and Juliet. As Lionheart is about to kill Devlin, Devlin's like, wait, first, at least explain to me how you're still alive. And this is where we get our other flashback to Lionheart washing ashore in just the dirtiest place you've ever seen. You know, 70s London, man. <laughs> and or Especially it's the Thames. The Thames is disgusting to begin with, but uh, bums pull him out and they're like, they, they take, because he fell with the awards they like take the award from him and they're just like seeing like okay what's they're starting to like strip him of clothes but uh, but then they realize he's alive and then they start to kind of almost like worship him this is a fun little he does his uh the the tempest oh brave new world that has such people in it i think he says creatures and the line i believe is people it might be creatures i could be misremembering but well you know i'm I'm glad he used creatures because he because he's right they're fucking creatures (laughs) yeah they're they're (laughs) disgusting yeah but this really is a, um, I mean, these are Caliban-like creatures, these bums. They, these are, like, and they're kind of <laughs> enslaved to him in a way. So the, this Tempest, little, this little Tempest nod is very appropriate for what these bums are. <laughs> You're so right, yeah. And then Lionheart, back in the present, decides not to kill Devlin. But he says, like, I will kill you, and you'll never know when it's coming. It's going to happen. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen a week from now, but you will die. And then he just leaves. Yeah, well, after after cutting his chest and yeah, getting all yeah, kinds of scars. I mean, he right, injures he just... him. Yeah. So then the female critic, there's one female critic. She goes to get her hair done at a salon. Vincent Price shows up, again, rocking that 70s afro, kind of a fun 70s outfit, and after the cop agrees to kind of wait in the other room because, you know, it's just getting your hair done. What could possibly goes wrong? go wrong? Uh, <laughs> Lionheart reminds her, like, hey, you remember that uh, scene in Henry VI, part one, when they burn Joan of Arc at the stake? <laughs> and then he just electrocutes her with the hair, with the, um, was it, what are those, like, those domed things? Yeah, called? yeah, yeah, those, uh, those hair those hair things those old lady hair things yeah it's, it's kind of a fun scene it's also not really much of a setup it just kind of happens but i'm all for vincent price in that goofy 70s outfit and with the fro and everything he looks great he looks like the stage manager honestly when he does when yeah. diana rig dresses as as is a man so we've only got two critics left it's devlin of course and it's the guy that you mentioned earlier the guy with the poodles <laughs> 
this is a character I'm not super comfortable with because they're they're making him very effeminate. I guess the idea is he's gay, right? Because he's got his very feminine looking dogs instead of, you know, everyone else has like a wife, right? Yeah. Or Devlin, I guess, doesn't, but he's got a super hot secretary. So, you know, he's getting some action somewhere. <laughs> but like every, everyone's got a wife and except for except for this guy. And the next play Devlin reveals, you know, from Lionheart's season was Titus Andronicus. And this is a fun little scene when they're like, okay, what's the death in that? And then he starts listing like all these ways people die. And he's like, there's a bunch of them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like this is pretty well known to anyone who knows like just a little bit about Shakespeare. But Titus Andronicus is horrifically violent. It's, It's referred to as Shakespeare's bloodiest play. But it's just like all around kind of a nasty play. People have said for years, too, that it's his worst play, which it's not. It's not even, believe it or not, his worst play that's represented in this movie. Because Henry VI Part One is terrible. Well, it's, I mean, it's I, I do like an evil Joan of Arc. I do kind of like that. But other than that, it's not good. And I even think Titus Andronicus is better than The Two Gentlemen of Verona. But, you know, that might be that might be a hot take. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, hot take, yeah. <laughs> so, this feminine guy with the poodles, he he shows up at his home, and he, oh wait, no, I skipped the I skipped the Othello one, didn't I? Uh, yeah, yes, the Othello, yeah, the Othello scene is kind of a weird one. I can't remember if this happens before or after the hairdressing scene. It happens before the hairdressing scene. Yeah, this one's strange because it requires weeks and weeks of setup. Which is something they reference <laughs> later on when they're talking yeah, they about it. It took like five weeks. <laughs> yeah, but so this one critic, his wife is Deanna Doors, who we've mentioned. Gorgeous British bombshell from the 40s, 50s. Clearly, you know, in this movie, she had seen better days, but kind of pretty attractive for an older lady, I'd still say. Yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. She gets massages in her home whenever her husband leaves and her husband starts getting suspicious so he watches this guy that's clearly vincent price in a disguise again go up to his room and he's sneaking up there and (laughs) it seems a little weird vincent price is massaging her very hard in a way that not only will make her moan but in a way that will move the bed (laughs) to make it sound like some other action is taking place there yeah he's he's it's very uh aggressive massage yeah it's it's an aggressive (laughs) massage and when it's when they discover that her husband is there, she's like, oh, no, what will he think? He just like covers her mouth and and then just starts making noises so that she can't like tell him, no, 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 it's fine. The critic then barges through the door and strangles her to death. So this is your Othello choking Desdemona scene. Afterwards, Devlin and the Leopold Bloom are discussing. They're like, this is different than his MO, right? Well, A, it took a long setup, but also B, he didn't actually kill the critic. And then Devlin's like, well, he's as good as dead. Like, he's an old dude and he's going to prison for who knows how long. Which, you know, if you, I would much rather have been killed by Vincent Price than have to go to prison and maybe live like 15 years behind bars before I die. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, it's like Vincent Price had it out for that guy specifically. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of un, like why why does the wife have to like what did the wife do? Maybe the wife left one of his plays early or something, but like she didn't write a bad <laughs> review. Yeah, poor wife. It's it's like in Saw 3D when the wife gets it in that movie too. It's just like oh she didn't do anything. She didn't even know. Why are you, why are you burning her to a crisp? <laughs> so, anyways, we're back to the effeminate poodle owner. My least favorite critic, probably, although one of my favorite scenes. 
He comes home, and at first it seems like nobody's home. It seems like his dogs aren't home. But then... <laughs> A curtain gets pulled back, and it's revealed that he is on his favorite cooking television show. I guess it's like a reality show. This kind of predates reality TV, but but he is aware that, I mean, this is obviously it's Vincent Price doing his thing, but he is aware that this is a show um, because he had always said like, oh, I've always wanted to be on it. Yeah. But so it's Vincent Price dressed as a chef, and he sits him down, and he's like, here, have this pie. And he's eating it, and he's talking about, oh, this is fantastic. And he's like, oh, but I, I do wish my dogs were here to enjoy this with me. <laughs> Vincent Price <laughs> says, why, they're right here. <laughs> and he, he pulls up the uh, the, the metal covering, and, and it's just like two little dog heads. And he's like, they're baked into this pie. <laughs> this is so over the top and dumb and silly, but I like it. And then they force feed him the rest of the dog meat until he dies it's yeah it goes from being like fun and amusing to being very very disgusting real quick you know what it reminded me of for some reason it reminded me of the sin of gluttony in um, a nightmare on elm street five in uh christ what's the movie oh the monty python no (laughs) no 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 is that Uh, the monty python movie where he eats a lot oh oh that guy too i don't remember that scene well, I was thinking more of in Seven when they go find Because there's the Monty Python thing. For some reason, I thought of Seven immediately. And uh, the fat guy being force-fed food by Kevin Spacey. Who, that's not the first time he's forced his own ideas on somebody. Okay, all right. We, I got you. But, uh, <laughs> the, for, the, this is another Nightmare on Elm Street connection because I think it's in the fifth movie, which I think is the same movie that has the bad year pun about wine. <laughs> there's there's a there's a young woman who doesn't like eating because she wants to be a model. And he eventually kills her by making her eat so much food. And then it's revealed that he's actually feeding her herself. He's like taking parts of her stomach out and forcing her to eat that. Uh, and it's basically this scene. Freddy's dressed as a chef in that one as well. Yeah. A Freddy's a hack. That's what I, that's what I understand. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to blame Stephen Hopkins for that one because that guy's <laughs> a hack. But. <laughs> those those uh, nightmare five and, and freddy's dead are not the best movies in that series i'll say that so we've got only devlin left as a critic and he's there's a kind of a strange thing but he he says he's going to meet with edwina he's under the impression that edwina does not know or no 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 excuse me he knows edwina knows that lionheart's alive but i think he he thinks that edwina doesn't know he's killing people yeah, I think that's which it. Which is kind of foolish, but they've got the sting operation set up, which is basically just there's a person in the trunk. <laughs> it's, it's really not the best. Classic best, sting uh, operation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Edwina is getting in the car to go show Devlin where her father is, but then a carriage goes by or whatever. And is it a carriage or a car? I'm picturing carriage for some reason. I think it's a car. I mean, why wouldn't it be a car? But why am I thinking it's a carriage? <laughs> right? This is 1973. But I, I'm like really thinking it's a carriage for some reason. I, <laughs> but anyways, he gets bonked on the head. And so they kidnap him. And then they also take the car from uh, the, that the guy's in the trunk for. And this is probably, for me anyways, the funniest scene when they're when the other cops are listening in on the walkie-talkie trying to find out where this guy is. And he's like, oh, let's see, the car is stopped. I'm at uh, I'm at train tracks. I repeat, I am at train tracks. Then you hear the train <laughs> approaching. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I like great. that scene a lot. That, that, <laughs> that's a that great scene. That was very funny for me. 
So they take Devlin to the Richard Burbage Theater with all the bums, with Diana Rigg back in stage manager costume for some reason. And they've got him tied up to a chair, and they're going to take out his eyes, a la the scene in King Lear, unless he basically recants and admits that Vincent Price, or Lionheart, excuse me, should have won the Critics' Award back in 1971. So we got this elaborate setup. These signs, or these banners are all up, and Lionheart, he's wearing a cape, of course, classy as always, Vincent Price. <laughs> And he does his announcement, and he's like, and the winner of the Critics' Award is... Uh, then Devlin says the name that he... that he, who actually had won it a few years ago. And so <laughs> then they have... There's kind of this weird contraption, but it's this it's this thing. It's got it's got knives on it. It's got daggers that are hot. It's like what blacksmiths, you know, when they, when they yeah, like yeah. put metal in fire so that they can bend it. It's like that. But they've got these two daggers. I guess they measured out the distance between Ian Hendry's eyes because they've got this like... It's kind of a Pinewood Derby type thing, right? Because it's like a track for this little car to go down with knives. But the, the car is being held by a rope, which is tied to a bag of sand. But the sand is leaking, so the car... The knives are coming closer and closer to Devlin's eyes. It's a strange setup, but it's fun. And this is when we get the ultimate reveal that the stage manager is Diana Rigg, which I don't know why anyone would have been surprised by that. And I also don't know why it's necessary in this scene, because to Devlin, even, I mean, he just got bonked on the head while he was <laughs> while he was uh, trying to uh, do this thing with Edwina. So at this point, he knows Edwina's in on it, you know? Yeah. But at any rate, then it's it's kind of like this is a little this is a little vibes too where where it's kind of like the end things kind of just happen a bit like we start burning down this place but lionheart grabs some torches and starts throwing them around the bums just start they're not even it's not like a conscious like rebellion against at least i don't think it is if it is it's not really captured in that way but the bums hit diana rig in the head and then Lionheart gets very upset, and he grabs her and takes her up to the roof. And this is when the cops bust in, save Devlin, and they go outside as Vincent Price is climbing with with um, Dame Diana Rigg over his shoulder. And she apparently dies, and so he's very sad. But then, boom, like an explosion, like a fireball. <laughs> and the two of them fall down. It's a little magnificent little scene. They somehow fall back into the building. It's a little yes. strange. But I mean, you know, you know, the fireball blew open the roof, I guess. I don't know. And then in a very, the movie ends on a funny joke when, uh, when Devlin says, yeah, you know, he was overacting as usual or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, <laughs> I was worried that in like the last, uh, in like the last few minutes, Vincent Price was going to pull a, um, uh, fuck, how come I can never remember anybody's name when I want to? What's the name of the old guy in Game of Death? Oh, um, Mr. Six from the Six Flags commercials. No, it was Dean Dean Jagger. Thank you, yeah, I thought we were just gonna pull a Dean Jagger. <laughs> just like climbing this ladder, I was like, no! <laughs> you know? And then a Bruce Lee the scream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's gonna yell, curse you, Bruce Lee! <laughs> Bruce Lee was alive at this, oh, actually he died in 73, so. He's more alive when this movie was made than he was when <laughs> Game of Death was released, we'll put it that way. So, Jim, what did you think of Theater of Blood? I really enjoyed it. You know, again, as you had prefaced this many, many, many months ago, you had said this is exactly like Fibes, but much better, and I totally agree mm-hmm. with you. Uh, it was funny, all the comedy bits were done pretty well. 
yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about it. It's just a, it was just a fun, fine Vincent Price movie. I mean, you're you're coming to this to watch Vincent Price and nothing else really, and his overacting. But the which bums isn't steal actually... the show. The well, exactly, bums, you're right. They do. They have the bums have their moments. You can't overlook that. <laughs> no, no, especially when they're like half covered in mud, pulling Vincent Price out of the Thames. I'm like, oh, oh my god, it's so disgusting. Yeah, it's yeah, so disgusting. Everything, everything looks gross. I'm like, oh, I don't even want to imagine being there. And imagine, and you've walked next to the Thames, you know, you know it smells like shit half the time. Yeah. Like, imagine that. Ugh, disgusting, dirty bums. Yeah, I think Vincent Price is just fantastic in this. He's the perfect um, guy for this role. I mean, who else pulls off this role with this level of sincerity with also nailing the, the comedic bits? Because he, well, he comes off as, when he's doing his Shakespeare stuff, he comes off as a Shakespearean actor, but a very, very old-fashioned Shakespearean actor. Like, the type of Shakespearean acting that, honestly, nowadays, if we see it, we wouldn't say it's good. Yeah. But that also I, makes sense because he didn't win the award, so it, so it really does make sense. Well, exactly. And and I'm, I'm thinking maybe that's why, because you were saying at the beginning that, what was it? What magazine was talking about fives is like 50 year anniversary or whatever oh i think it was i think i think it was a fangoria thing it might have been a bloody disgusting thing on that website but i think it was fangoria going back to your point about you know for some reason theater of blood doesn't have like this cult following that fives seemingly does and i think it does go back to this whole shakespeare thing but it also goes back to that classic shakespearean acting you know where maybe some people think that that vincent price is just like too over the top or something but really he's actually perfect he's hitting the nail on the head constantly throughout this whole movie with his yeah. acting chops yeah i don't know i like diana rigg here too yeah yeah she, I like she does a fine job actors. Yeah. i think ian hendry he's i wouldn't say consistently he's funny or anything but he he nails that last line of the movie pretty well <laughs> like i'll give him that <laughs> i, I yeah. think he's good madeline smith as i mentioned is there she's she's in the background of the final scene she you could see her when when we when we have that final line I don't know why oh. she's there. She's always just like in the background. Like you have Madeline Smith from Live and Let Die, The Vampire <laughs> Lovers, one of the Hammer Frankenstein movies. I can't remember which one. Like she's great. Use, use her more. Beautiful woman too. Yeah. Theater of Blood I think is very, very good. I think it, our biggest complaint with Fives was, or at least mine was, I can't I can't speak for you. I don't remember. But my biggest complaint was five, with Fives was that... There wasn't much connecting fives with the methods of killing people, like the yeah. Bible connection in that movie, because he killed people based on the the plagues of Egypt. That was like had nothing to do with him. That was like his wife's. Like didn't didn't his wife was wasn't it like his wife a biblical scholar? Well, no, he's a biblical scholar, I guess. Excuse me, but the, but those had nothing to do with his wife. Yeah, Here, I, I, in this movie, there's much more of a connection between killer and killing method, as well as the person being the, the victims and the thing. There's even like a connection with um, the character that kind of hits on Diana Rigg and has a thing for Diana Rigg. He gets his heart ripped out. Like there's somewhat of a connection there. His name's also Dickman. By uh, the way. Oh, that's that. unfortunate. <laughs> um, and obviously the person, the one person dies by eating his beloved poodles to death <laughs> yeah, yeah so this this and then i'm thinking like well and okay I'll, a lot of the other deaths aren't really they, they don't have that kind of ironic quality to them but th those two do at least yeah all the deaths though as you mentioned they they were connected to the theater shakespeare and more specifically edward the lionheart 
Yeah, and more like, specifically, the bums. You're right. You're right. The bums. <laughs> but I'm I'm serious. This is a movie. You, you you Vincent Price is the star. He's he's the he's the reason this movie exists. But honestly, the bums are great. You know, all the props to them. We didn't mention the scene where Inspector Boot has a bum and he's withholding liquor from him to get him to tell him where where Lionheart's lair is. <laughs> it's like right before the climax of the movie he's like now tell me where Lionheart is and i'll give you this alcohol <laughs> do you know I, I just looked it up on wikipedia all the people labeled or all the bums they are credited as meth's drinker <laughs> meth's as drinker. what drinker meth's m-e-t-h-s huh so is, so that, is, that... is that like like liquid meth like yeah is that I... Well, it, it's it is blue, so you know maybe yeah. some Breaking Bad connections here. <laughs> yeah, a meths drinker, huh? Interesting, interesting. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a great movie. I like this is a movie I have recommended to like three people. Awesome. This is a movie that I've tried recommending to people because I'm in postgraduate English programs, and you'd think people would be digging this shit but honestly no one no one seems to care whenever i talk about this movie and i'm like come on <laughs> like we had this thing where um all the english graduate students at one of the universities i was at we did this thing where like each week in october we would watch a horror movie and i'm like yo theater of blood come on like listen i know no one's heard of it but it's it's a shakespeare horror movie and it's this got great surprise in it yeah so you know instead we're watching sounds the lambs the crow you know all these shitty movies and you could be <laughs> yeah. watching vincent price shit. ham it up as shakespeare or as shakespeare as richard the third yeah and you know too there's actually i'm reading this wikipedia page as we're talking and the film was originally supposed to be titled much ado about murder that's a fun title but that doesn't i guess a theater of blood's a great they're both fun titles theater of blood is i think more appropriate it's also funny because rick sloan director of the vice academy series I know you weren't there, Jim, but we just talked about that last week. Uh, he directed a movie called Blood Theater. So, so, so there's a Rick Sloan connection with this film, too, unfortunately. <laughs> that man will not escape my life, no matter how badly I want him to. But yeah, uh, Much Ado About Murder is good. That sounds, to me, more like a murder mystery with like slightly comedic elements. It sounds like an Theater Agatha Christie Blood book. sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, it, yeah, a little bit. Like a tongue-in-cheek Agatha Christie. Like a... um. Manhattan Murder Mystery with Woody Allen. You know, it sounds like something like that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If I want to know there's a horror movie about this, you know, monster played by a critically acclaimed actor, you know, all I need to see is, well, honestly, just Woody Allen's name in the credits. But in this case, like <laughs> Theater of Blood, I do think, great title. I, I, I agree. It doesn't hammer the Shakespeare in. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, just watch the movie. I mean, it's it's good. I think it's very good. So, Jim, which of these two movies do you prefer? I've been thinking about this long and hard, my friend. Although, or though, I guess, I love my, my Star Trek. The motion picture is really kind of a, a, a bit of a letdown. Half of it's fantastic, and the other half is not so fantastic. And so I'm going to have to go with the movie that's fantastic the whole way through, and that's Theater of Blood. How about you? I agree. I won't agree on the fantastic first half. I do think the first half is stronger than the second half when it comes to Star Trek, the motion picture. But yeah, Theater of Blood, more consistently enjoyable. I mentioned there's a few scenes I'm not wild about. It brings the laughs. This is one of the bloodier Vincent Price movies you'll, you'll see, I think, because Vincent Price, 50s, 60s, you know, 
a lot of his movies are black and white. They tend to not have that much blood. No, we get a heart ripped out. I mean, or at least we get a heart in a box. Get a heart placed <laughs> on a scale. We get a, a, st- a pretty violent stabbing with a spear. It's pretty violent. It's entertaining. It's got a good cast. I like it. Quick question. What was up with the, uh, um, uh, that critic's decapitated head outside of like Devlin's apartment? Yes, that made no sense. I, I skipped over that part, but that really, yeah, because it's after after the decapitated head lands by the maid. The next scene is Devlin's hanging out in his condo and the head's there. And I'm, yeah, there's, I don't get it. I, we, <laughs> I don't know what that scene was about. So, Jim, how do you think this works as a double feature? Well, you know, we kind of jokingly talked about um, two, like, egomaniacal actors and older actors and fat people and alcoholics and you know all that stuff but i don't walter koenig was homeless at the time of the filming of the star trek the motion no he wasn't was he really no i'm kidding (laughs) he didn't have a career there's a difference i understand that (laughs) oh man you got me damn it every time Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think, I don't think this really works as a, as a double feature. I, uh, <laughs> I would, I would hate to have to watch Star Trek and then this, or even the other way around, B- mainly because Star Trek would just kill it. Um, that long second hour in Star Trek, mm-hmm. I think just kills yeah. everything. Any momentum gained is just killed by Star Trek. <laughs> right. I think I mostly agree with you. I think I don't think this is a great drive into double feature. I think Theater of Blood is an excellent second feature as this like kind of weird oddity again, largely forgotten movie despite having a couple big names in it, including Vincent Price, one of the all-time great horror stars. Yeah, and it's weird. It's silly. It's entertaining. It's pretty violent again for 1973. It's pretty bloody and a little disgusting uh well very disgusting in the, in the very disgusting in the scene when the dude eats his own dogs that scene gets pretty nasty that's <laughs> yeah, kind of funny though <laughs> but i think i think that the the bigger reason ultimately it's not just that like star trek is slow it's just star trek's just not a drive-in movie and i guess you know maybe yeah it's, it's that it's star slow. trek is star trek that's the issue <laughs> I, I, I got to come clean here with our listeners, you know, who tune in hoping that we will eventually talk about Hellbound Hellraiser 2, you know, who are wondering, like, what the hell are you talking about a Star Trek movie for? All right. Jim's a big Star Trek fan. <laughs> and when I conceived of this podcast being mostly horror and exploitation-y kind of movies, being, you know, your Hell, Hell Hellbound Hellraiser 2s and your Maniac Cop 2s and your A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 Freddy's Revenges, like... I, I wasn't sure how receptive you would be to that idea, so I was ready to like throw in Star Trek as a bargaining chip. Turns out you agreed to it before I even mentioned Star <laughs> Trek, but that is so I am true, a man yeah. to my unspoken word. <laughs> I am true to my unspoken word, so I we uh we got we got Star Trek movies coming along at some point. You know, might be a long time before we get to the next one. Who knows? But hey, Wrath of Khan is still not a drive-in movie, but it is more so than <laughs> motion picture. So. Well, you know, I just want to point out, though, I'm sure people saw the motion picture at drive-ins across North America when it came out. Like, I'm sure that would have been a thing, right? Yeah, they might have slept through them, you know. (laughs) What are we talking about next week, man? So, we are doing our first Western (gasps) so far. And our our first, it's, it's a spaghetti Western, of course, because we don't have that many Westerns here. Most of them are spaghetti Westerns, not all of them. We've got a fistful of dollars. Coming to you from director Sergio Leone. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking forward to an Italian movie that makes sense. 
based on um, you know house by the cemetery you know not as much so fiscal dollars sergio leone clint eastwood ennio morricone they're coming at you along with our first i believe i believe our first canon film enter the ninja from 1981 (laughs) okay to my knowledge neither of these films are streaming anywhere but you look for enter the ninja on prime and tubi maybe when this episode's out i mean both of those services have have a lot of like kind of random 80s action type stuff so you might luck out but anyways until then take care take care of yourselves watch some shakespeare or read some shakespeare watch some star trek or (laughs) eat yourself to death like the guy in theater of blood or like james doolin oh i was gonna make that joke (laughs) poor guy the guy that ate his dogs or james doolin (laughs) i both like well Think of how much more food James Doohan could have shoved in his mouth if he had all ten of his fingers. (laughs) Think about that.